1: Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: As I've been saying for the last several weeks, I'm in Roswell. I'm still in Roswell. I will be going home shortly, I hope. Anyway, uh, I've spent some time talking to the various uh, researchers who are here and you've heard some of the interviews and uh, looking around at uh, the whole festival activity. And I think we need to separate the festival from the Roswell UFO case and UFOs in general because uh, although related, they're not really the same thing. Here's a couple of observations. The festival is a major event here in Roswell. I mean, they go all out, they block off streets, they have parades. There's literally tens of thousands of people who come into Roswell for this event. It's huge. And as I was walking around in the downtown area, I noticed an awful lot of the businesses are related to the Roswell UFO crash and talking about aliens and that sort of thing, an alien theme in the businesses. And it's not just centered in the um, downtown area, it's all along uh, the main streets in Roswell. There's an awful lot of um, new hotels, uh, upscale hotels in Roswell, and I I suspect the reason is this uh, story of the UFO crash has attracted a lot of attention, and a lot of people come to Roswell, not only during the festival, but all during the year, to uh, learn a little bit more about that. The last I heard, they're they're talking about... uh, Literally hundreds of thousands of, of visitors to the museum in uh, in a year, and so it's been an extreme economic boon to the city, and they've exploited it very, very well. Which really doesn't detract from the the initial story, but it's just uh, like I guess any town or any area that has something historical associated or something. in important that's happened there or some kind of natural phenomenon or natural formation there that they exploit to bring tourists into the area. And Roswell's done a real good job of promoting the, uh, the Roswell UFO crash. And I have to take uh, some responsibility for that because, of course, I've written books about it. Uh, Don Schmidt and I did a book in the early 1990s, 1990, 1991, called UFO Crash at Roswell. No, I did not pick the name. That was picked by the publisher and I argued with them and they said, but the title tells, tells it all in you know, four words, and of course it did. But I think that kind of sparked some of the interest. Uh, the interest in the Roswell case had been kind of fading with uh, MJ-12 coming up and some other things going on. And Don and I... Uh, Kind of rekindled it, I think, in some respect. Since that time, there's been literally dozens of books. I'm responsible for a number of them myself. I did uh, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. And uh People said, well, why did you call it that? And I said, because I wanted to incorporate the name UFO Crash at Roswell with the first book so that uh, you could tie them together. But I've done a number of books about about Roswell. Don has done books with Tom Carey about Roswell. Friedman has done books about uh, Roswell. Other people have done books about Roswell. There's literally um, dozens of books about the Roswell case. So it's become an important part of ufology. And the festival is an outgrowth of all of that. So when you look at that, uh, you, you wonder if there's an element of untruth about the, the case. I think that you, you take a look at it from one point of view. Everybody agrees there was an event in Roswell. Everybody agrees something fell. It's the interpretation of that if information is what is the crux of the controversy. But the, the city has embraced this idea. And the uh, museum actually is very interesting. They've got some very interesting displays in there, and people have donated a lot of time and effort and money to create those displays. There was a um, ABC News broadcast back in July of 1947, a headline edition, and it talks about the Roswell case. And they have a copy, uh, a recording of that initial um, radio report back from 1947 here in a. Old-looking radio, and you push the button, and you hear the the whole uh, radio broadcast on that, which is kind of interesting. And they've got a lot of other displays that deal with uh, UFOs, not just Roswell, but other UFOs. Some of it I'm not real thrilled about. Uh, they've got the, what is it, the placenta, um, symbol or the uh, carving from from the Mayan that they claim shows a Mayan ruler lifting off into space uh, without a spacesuit, I might add, and not much in the way of a craft that, that some say this is proof of ancient aliens and uh, contact uh, through, through the ages. But I don't think so. But they've got a very nice display of that sort of thing. And then they've got some things that I just don't agree with. Um, MJ-12, they have a display of some of the MJ-12 stuff. But the displays, for the most part, are pretty much neutral. And they're not saying that this is not true, or that's not true, or this is true, and this is the absolute truth. I noticed in some of the photographs, they have a photographic display, and they've, they've labeled what they are. You know, this is a hoax done by a guy throwing a hubcap into the air. This is a fake done this way. Uh, we know this one's a fake, so they're uh, attempting to be somewhat neutral. I know when Walter Hot and I had discussed the idea of the museum, and I, he discussed it not just with me, but with others as well, that his theory was to create a research center here in Roswell that would embrace sort of everything about UFOs. And if you're going to be a proper research center, I think you need to look at the materials that are obviously fake, the obvious hoaxes, but but you treat them as that way, you say, well, we're not real sure about this, but here's the information that's been released on this sort of thing. And they've done a very good job of that. They've got an awful lot of books here. Uh, all, from, from everywhere, including some of the people I would not include in my library, but uh, they've, they've done a very nice job of that. And it's a very interesting thing to see, and the festival is uh, well done. There's multiple programming tracks, and they bring in the experts in various fields. I spoke with Travis Walton just today um, about this sort of thing. Don Schmidt, of course I we did an interview with him. Frank Kimbler, who we were going, I, I I canceled him twice, and he's very gracious about that um, because of some of the situations here in the museum and the way we had to hook things up. I had to cancel his mm-hmm. his interview twice. He's done two things that I find extremely fascinating. One is he's looked for physical evidence out on the debris field and that sort of thing, and he's a, a trained geologist, so he's, he's looking for that sort of thing, and he talks about... Um, some of this uh, stuff being analyzed now in the proper laboratories and they're getting some interesting results. I don't have the full story yet because the analysis hasn't been completed. And we'll get Frank on here, but I'm gonna talk to him about two things. One is his research there and the Roswell Festival. And I'm gonna talk to him about the Lost Adams diggings, which is a gold placer gold mine that uh, was discovered the lost back in the late 1880s. I think it was. And he says that uh, he knows where it is and he will tell us where it is. And I think that's kind of interesting go on so um, I haven't done much in the way of research here but it, but talking to people about their experiences um, around Roswell and that sort of thing about the Roswell case now we've uh, delved into that case here in Roswell um, amongst ourselves talking about where the research has gone and what's been going on and that becomes kind of fascinating in and of itself and it's the different avenues being pursued by various researchers, one of the questions that had come up is what's new, what can you do differently? Is, should, is the research done? Kimbler talked about his physical evidence research, which I mentioned just briefly. Um, we've been looking, and I say we, it's a Martin Dwyer and a number of other people. have been looking at the Ramey Memo, which is this document that uh, Roger Ramey is holding in his hand in a picture taken on July 8, 1947. And what's really hilarious about that is Um, we talked to the photographer who took the picture. We have a documentation of when the picture was printed in the newspaper, when it was sent over the wires, and we have Roger Ramey holding the document in his hand. So the providence is perfect. It's just beautiful. You know when it was taken and who's in the picture and what's going on. And the idea is trying to see the document itself and read the document, because you can see there's writing on there. And there's been, I think, 20 years of research in attempting to...
0: The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: To de it, to understand what's going on. And that's another avenue of research. Um, it hasn't borne fruit yet. And I think it's, our technology just hasn't been capable of resolving... The uh, the image to the point where we can read it. We there are hints. You can see words in the document. I think it says Fort Worth, Texas. It says weather balloon. So it's clearly about the Roswell case, given the the timing of this thing and what's going on. So we know it's a document about that. But what we don't know is what else it says there has been a number of analyses, but they're not universally accepted. And I think that's one of the problems we have with UFO research. We've got to get to the point where the majority of the people, and I don't think we're ever gonna get to a point where everybody's gonna agree, but where the majority of the people agree with the analysis. And that's where we break down right now. There's a couple of schools of thought of exactly what the Ramey memo says, but it's an area of research that we can pursue uh, today that uh, isn't going to go away like the witness testimony and that sort of thing. So we'll, uh, we're continuing that research as uh, the technology advances and more people become involved in trying to decipher exactly what the Ramey memo says. And that was one of the things that we had talked about. But uh, we're going to break here. I'm going to uh, uh, talk about some of the other things that uh, the research has been... Been uh, researchers have been doing and that sort of thing about the Roswell case and where we might go in the future. Um, I'll be talking more about this at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I will be back right after this. So stick around. Other, my thoughts.
4: Yeah.
3: Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of
4: course. We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
2: I am reminiscing, I guess, about the festival and some of the activities that's place here in, in Roswell, New Mexico, and a little bit about the Roswell UFO crash. And there's a there's great divergence of opinion here most of the people who attend the festival of course are, are predisposed to believe that it's alien and some of them are just rabid about it and they bring in all the nonsense mj-12 for example and other other conspiracy avenues that i just don't really find too interesting but uh you know you'd look at everybody's opinion but uh there's the hardcore researchers who are trying to determine what exactly happened. And uh, I, as I, as you know, we mentioned this every, every week, uh, I did a book called Roswell in the 21st Century. And the whole point of that is I wanted to look at uh, the case as dispassionately as I could look at it as a cold case, go back through the files, go back through the interviews, go back through um, the tapes and everything that I had gathered over the years about this and, and, and talk to some of the people that were still involved uh, about this and see what we could determine about the case. Now in the early 1990s, I was absolutely convinced that Roswell was extraterrestrial. It was alien to end of discussion. No bus, no more needs to be said. It was a very robust case, but as I looked at it, More recently, I became a little bit disturbed by some of the things that I had learned. For example, the Glenn Dennis testimony about the nurse and the coffins and all of that sort of thing kind of blew up on us. Glenn Dennis was not as candid with us as he could have been. And uh, when confronted with some of this, you know, he changed the story, which is not a good sign. Glenn Glenn Dennis said that he had met with a nurse out at the base. He knew the nurse out at the base. So he at a romantic uh, interlude with her, and he was... He was married at the time and that she had been involved in a preliminary autopsy at the base. And she told him a little bit about it and drew a, on a napkin in a, in a bar that he met her, um, the alien face, what it kind of looked like and that sort of thing, and then shredded it and burned it up in an ashtray. And he said that he was, she was transferred off the base shortly thereafter and when then was killed in a plane accident. Um, We tried to get the name of the nurse from him. He eventually gave it to me quietly. He said, well, you know, her name is Naomi Self, but don't mention this to anybody. And then he proceeded to tell everybody under the sun what the name was. Even Philip Klass ended up with the name, so it wasn't a big secret. We did a lot of research into that because here's a nurse, an army nurse. Um, If we could find her to corroborate the story, that would be great. I looked through the unit histories I looked through the newspapers, because in the newspaper there was always a little blurb, you know, who was new in town, and it was often military people who just arrived in town. Didn't appear there, didn't appear in the military morning reports. These were issued every morning, literally every morning, by a unit saying who is there for for duty and who's on leave, who may be in the hospital, who is AWOL, all that sort of thing appears on that. When they signed into the base, their name would appear, when they signed out, their name would appear. Never found the record of her showing up at the base in any way, shape, or form. A fellow named Vic Vic Golublik uh, did an awful lot of research into this. He came up with, uh, I think, 100 found a database with 124,000 Army nurses' names on it. Her name was never there. Talked to both the base hospital, the the people who were assigned there, and the local hospitals looking for it. They couldn't find the name. So Vic uh, confronts Glenn Dennis with this information, and Glenn Dennis says, well, I never told you the right name. So we've spent all this time with him confiding in us that here's the nurse, name of the nurse. Please don't tell anybody, but here's the nurse. And when we actually prove the negative, if you will, that she wasn't here, he changes his story. And for me, that was the end of the Glendennis testimony. And that's what I mean when I say some of the testimonies have blown up on us, that people who we trusted were telling us the truth didn't do so. And it, and it was very worrisome. So as I looked uh, at this information for, for the book, um, I was able to eliminate some of the testimony, realized it was not nearly as robust as I had thought. Yes, there were people like Edwin Easley, the provost marshal, who told me basically it was extraterrestrial. And in the conversation with him, uh, I had said to him, are we following the right path? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we think it's extra trust. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path. I mean, here was a senior officer at the base. He was a member of the primary staff uh, at, at the base. A very credible gentleman, never expanded his story, never changed his story, was very credible about it in, in giving this hint. But there again, it's a hint and it is testimony. And we have some very interesting testimonies for the case. Um, Jesse Marcel provided some very interesting testimonies, but there are hints that Jesse liked to tell stories as well. There's a book that um, a a woman, Linda Linda Coley wrote, called For the Sake of My Country. And it's about an interview she conducted with Jesse Marcel. She spent four or five hours with him recording him, uh, telling the stories about all of this sort of thing. And if you go through the book, you find little little hints that are very worrisome about what Marcel said. The other thing that Jesse Marcel said was, and and I don't know whether this was a confusion on the part of the interviewer, and this the interview at, at this point would have been Bob Pratt, and what Marcel said. But Marcel said that he'd received five air medals for shooting down five enemy aircraft during World War II. Well, clearly, he was in the Pacific during World War II. He was an intelligence officer in the Pacific. Clearly, he... Uh, went on missions because he received air medals. And it mentions that he were on these combat missions. He had like 450 hours of combat flight time. So he got a couple of air medals. We could never verify five and we could never, never verify that he'd shot down enemy aircraft. And if he'd received an air medal for that, it would have said specifically that the, 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 the I citation would have mentioned, uh, you know, that that he had shot down an enemy aircraft and that was why he was being awarded the air medal. We couldn't couldn't verify that, but he did receive air medals. He was in the Pacific and he did uh, he did receive air medals. So there were some problematic things with that, um, but for the most part, every member of Colonel Blanchard's staff that we were able to talk to, the senior staff that we were able to talk to in and interview, with one exception, hinted or flat out told us it was extraterrestrial, um, and and so that you know kind of opens the door a little bit for that. But there are so many other problems with the case. There's virtually no documentation other than newspaper articles. And we found the single FBI telex that uh, mentions the weather balloon story, but it was not borne out telegraph or telephonically with the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Wright Field at the time. So there are hints like that, but we don't have anything that tells us specifically of what was going on. And that kind of leads us back to the Ramey memo, because if we could read the thing, we might be able to determine exactly uh, what it says and it might lead us to the extraterrestrial. There's two, there's, there's one line and there's a number of different ways it's interpreted given the vagueness, the blurriness of the, uh, of the memo itself. And one interpretation by David Rudiak says victims of the wreck. Well, if it's a weather balloon, you're not gonna have victims of the wreck. You're gonna have a wreck weather balloon, but not victims of it. So that, that word becomes key. There's another interpretation that says viewing of the wreck. Well, if you just viewed the wreck, that changes the whole context. J. Bon Johnson, who took the photographs, so he was clearly in Ramey's office, he said at one point that he had handed the document to Ramey so he'd have something in his hand when he posed him for the photographs. The question became, Was was it a um, teletype from the newspaper office that Johnson had brought with him? and handed to Ramey? Or was it a document off Ramey's desk? Well, I have a hard time believing that he would have plucked the document off Ramey's desk to hand to him. So, you know, there's those sorts of problems. And if we could read the memo, it probably would tell us specifically that. I know in the various interpretations, what bothers me about it is that there really is no military jargon. And I'm thinking, I've been in meetings, military meetings, where the jargon was so fast and furious that I got lost in what they were talking about. And it's like a foreign language. And I, I find it difficult to believe in a teletype message. There wouldn't be some kind of jargon. And there are other, other problems with it like that. But in the end, we really can't read it. And uh, I, th- I think some hold up, this is the holy grail. If we can read the memo, it's going to prove the case once and for all. I think it's probably not going to lead as much of anywhere. And we're going to be left with the same problems we have. But on the other side of the coin, you know, in, in talking to the witnesses, there's some in, interesting civilian witnesses. Bill Brazel, for example, the son of the man that found the debris. Bill took um, Don Schmidt and me to the debris field where he'd found these scraps of, of debris himself. So we we know where exactly where it is. And uh, Bill Brazel told us about how uh, some of the properties. He said that there was one piece that. Uh, wire like like monofilament fishing line you shine a light in one end and it comes out the other was talking about fiber optics obviously talked about a piece of debris which light like balsa wood light like balsa wood but he couldn't get a scraping of it he wanted to see if there was any stratification and he used his pocket knife and he couldn't get a scraping on it which seemed it was a lot tougher than balsa wood obviously and then there was another piece he talked about being like lead foil or Tin foil, or you wad it up and it would unfold itself. Unfortunately, of course, he lost the, uh, the materials. And when I say lost, the Air Force came back and confiscated it from him. But Bill's a very credible man, was a very credible man. And uh, there may be other explanations for the, the materials that he described. I don't doubt his descriptions were as accurate as he could make them and that sort of thing. So there's another robust witness that hasn't fallen apart. But when we get to the bottom of the whole Roswell case, the problem is we just don't have the evidence to prove it i can tell you what i know i can tell you what i think and i can tell you what i can prove and what i what i think and what i know isn't necessarily what i can prove and that's that's where we run into the problems with this thing we have to look at all of that and we're left basically with testimonies and you have to determine how credible are the witnesses you're talking to how accurate are their memories because we're talking about events that when we started the investigation we're 40 45 years old and um, how reliable were those memories how uh, much contamination there might have been and so that they uh, um, were were saying things that they learned from other people Um, we will come back and explore a little bit about more about the roswell case and a little bit more about the festival uh, after we take this uh, break and uh, take a look at www.kevinrendell.blogspot.com, and I will be back right after this. Well, I'm still seated here in front of the microphone talking about the Roswell Festival and things like that. And I thought, uh, you know, we've kind of explored uh, some of the problems with the testimony and we're left in the Roswell case with testimony. And you have to decide for yourself whether or not you find the testimony credible and reliable and that sort of thing. And a lot of the testimony has blown up on us in the past, as I mentioned. And that's basically all we have. We have an interesting story, but it's told by many, many people. Uh, many many people who are lying about it too, but there are many people who are credible telling us the story. So you have to decide whether or not that testimony is sufficient for you to accept the alien nature of the of the event. I myself think that uh, as we looked for um, terrestrial explanations for the craft and what could it have been if it wasn't an alien spacecraft, what what could this this thing have been? And we really haven't found a good explanation for it. We, we, don't, we know it wasn't uh, some kind of an aircraft accident. It wasn't something from uh, the missile range. It wasn't a project mogul, no matter what the skeptics in the Air Force want to claim, that explanation doesn't work either. But we've eliminated everything that we can find, which doesn't eliminate the possibility of some kind of bizarre experiment that the government or the military conducted that they still don't want to talk about, or something terrestrial that we just haven't identified yet. So we're left, we're left with that kind of question. And, and is the testimony sufficient to lead you to the extraterrestrial? You have to kind of decide that for yourself. So anyway, um, we're trying to um, get to the bottom of the, of the whole thing. And you have to decide whether the testimony is sufficient for you to make that... Um, um, conclusion draw that conclusion yourself I myself have reached the point where I just don't want to make that leap to the extraterrestrial the testimony isn't sufficient for me to leap to that to that um, conclusion so we'll kind of move on from that now we'll be looking at the um, uh, some of the other cases that were talked about during during this um, event uh don burleson was here and i'm, I'm going to try to get him on the program and he's done some work on the levelland case and that's a, a sighting that took place in levelland texas in november of 1957 levelland's about three hours from roswell and it's kind of interesting some of these cases these really good cases are are more or less um, centered around this area and i think that's coincidence more than anything else but this was a sighting where People at 13 separate locations reported a craft close to the ground interfering with their car, interfering with their uh, electric systems of the car, uh, interacting with the environment. The uh, Air Force determined it was ball lightning, which is just an incredibly dumb thing for them to have said in 1957, because 1957, we weren't even sure that ball lightning existed, let alone alien spacecraft. So we have to take a look at all of that sort of thing we look at it but Don had gone into the area again many many years after the effect and he talked to the daughter and the uh, widow of the sheriff and the sheriff's story is much more robust than it had been reported by everybody else uh, when they've reported on the case but it's a it's a very interesting case because we have the witness testimony from um, uh, a number of sources who are independent of one another when they came forward to talk to their story, they called the, the sheriff's department or the police department were interviewed at that time and, and had not interacted and hadn't heard anything. So it's very interesting that way. There is a report, and when we bring Don on the program, we will get more into that, of the reason the sheriff had gone out was one of the ranchers had called to complain about a burned area on his property, you know, a landing trace like that. That would be a second Um, chain of evidence, uh, you know, physical evidence on the ground. So we have the interaction with the environment, stalling the car engines. We have the uh, burned area on the ground, which would be physical evidence to be seen. And we have the witness testimony, three different chains of evidence, which makes it a very robust case in that respect. Unfortunately, at the time, the Air Force was busy arguing with um, Don Kehoe at NICAP about how many witnesses there were. We're not arguing about the, the, the evidence. We're not arguing about the testimonies. We're arguing about how many witnesses there were. Kehoe said there were nine. The Air Force said there were three. I was able to identify people at 13 separate locations, so there are clearly a lot of witnesses out there. But that was you know that was one of the things that was discussed here at the festival. And not all the programming dealt specifically with uh, the Roswell case or Roswell investigations, but looked at other aspects of the UFO phenomena. And um, that's uh, that's also important as, as well. There was a, a variety of people. Uh, Travis Walton was here talking about his abduction experiences. Kathleen Martin was here, as you know, who uh, was talking about her abduction research. Alejandro Rojas was talking about what he had uh, learned in his conversations with various governmental officials and the research and the uh, reporting that he has done. So we looked at all of those sorts of things. So people come to the festival, obviously, so that they can... Uh, I think some of them to to reinforce their own belief structures they want to talk about um what they've seen or what they believe or what they think they've seen that sort of thing i've I've had people come up to me to talk to me about their their ufo sightings and one of them kind of disturbed me not so much the sighting but his reaction to it very frightened by the whole phenomenon thought something was horrible going on and was very scared about it and it wasn't all that spectacular of a sighting it was just sort of a close approach of a craft and had no other really attributes of it but it was something that uh, frightened him immensely and as we sat and chatted about that and i was able to mention well there's been lots of ufo sightings over the years and lots of people have reported them, and, and there's really been no one killed or injured by ufos directly there have been cases where um, people have been injured by their approaching close to a UFO and it may be a manifestation of the heat radiated by the craft or some kind of other radiation from the craft and that sort of thing. And there's some interesting documentation for some of those. Oftentimes, it's a sunburn, uh, like you've been out in the sun way too long as opposed to anything else. But I mean, there's a physical evidence, I was close to this UFO. And now I have this reddish glow on my skin because of the um, close approach to the UFO. And uh, there was a There's been a couple of pilots killed in chasing UFOs, but I think for the most part, it's not a direct reaction of the UFO, but it's mistakes made by the pilots. I think specifically of Thomas Mantell, who was killed in January of 1948. But I think it was a direct result of him violating regulations. Military regulations say you can't fly above 14,000 feet without oxygen. And in my research, I learned that hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen in the bloodstream. So you have a lock, lack of oxygen, in the brain can can onset itself very, very quickly. At 20,000 feet, they estimate without supplemental oxygen, the average person will remain conscious 10 minutes at 25,000 feet. You know, it's like six minutes. Mantell and his wingmen had been circling, climbing to 20,000 feet for period of time. And he said, well, I'm going to go to 25,000 feet and circle for 10 minutes. And if I don't see anything, or I can't get any closer, then I'll, I'll descend. He didn't have 10 minutes um he obviously passed out during the climb to 25,000 feet from hypoxia the plane was trimmed to climb it continued to climb until the torque of the engine pulled it over went into a power dive and disintegrated so he was killed not by the ufo but by chasing a ufo i think the ufo is probably a skyhook balloon but the real point is he wasn't killed by the ufo so we look at all of that, those those sorts of things but there's some interesting cases like that where you have that sort of physical evidence and we have to be aware of that. Um, but we look at, um, the, at the festival, as I said, they explore all, all, all avenues of the phenomenon and they do get uh, people talking about ancient aliens and that sort of thing. This is an area for which I do not subscribe. I don't believe in the ancient aliens. I don't uh, think that our, our great civilization leap forward were um, inspired by aliens coming down you know i've often said that uh, it, the aliens were helping the egyptians for example i'm thinking they, they've they come from outer space they've landed on earth and the only b- m- building material they can find is stone why didn't they bring some of the metallurgy with them that uh, would be able to create really great structures and suggest that kind of thing rather than these stone structures they have built so you know you've, you've got to look at all of that sort of thing but at the festival they in- I don't want to say they embrace all of this sort of thing, but they give the peop- some of the people an opportunity to to, to uh, talk about their experiences and what they believe. Uh, and I, there are people who want to hear that sort of thing. You know, it's kind of like who wants to see one movie and who wants to see another movie. They make movies for a variety of people uh, over the times. And I think that programming in, in a venue like this, where it's a festival and they call it a festival as opposed to a symposium or a research conference or anything like that. It's a festival that they, they look at all of those sorts of things, which explains why they have a parade at the at night and they, they used to have an alien judging contest. You dressed up in your best alien costume and it was a judging contest and things like that. And and for a festival I don't have a problem with that. I think it's a good idea and it, it, it helps Roswell, the Roswell City, uh, bring in tourist dollars and you can see the result of that as well. So, uh, you know, I can't really complain about that sort of thing. But I do kind of uh, I am kind of worried, I suppose, about the way uh, that that, that, that some of the programming and some of the the theories that are expounded around here. And the level of belief in those things It's not like it's a question anymore. It's not like uh, we don't have solid evidence. It's like this is the fact, period, end of discussion. And I, I, that worries me about the the closed-mindedness of some of the people. And I stress that some of the people, not all of them. And most of the researchers are looking at different things as well. They're not that closed-minded or that closed off. I'm going to have to take a quick break here. I will explore some of this more on, on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you're really interested in the Roswell case, I think uh, you should take a look at the book Roswell in the 21st Century, which outlines... Um, I guess some of the information that I have seen and things like that. So I will be back right after this, so stick around.
0: Christopher Fulton is a survivor of the National Security State. All he wanted to do was preserve history when he acquired a Cartier watch from the estate of President Kennedy's personal secretary. But that simple act set off a terrible chain reaction. He was pursued by the U.S. Justice Department and the FBI, thrust into the middle of the U.S. government's Assassination Records Review Board, even monitored and pursued by the Russian government. All because that Cartier watch was the missing link of evidence, a timepiece worn by JFK that fateful day in Dallas, a link resulting in Christopher being incarcerated and attacked for nine years because he opened a hidden chapter in history. The intriguing journey outlined fully in Christopher Fulton's memoir, The Inheritance, is available now through trineday.com or Amazon.com. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination by Christopher and Michelle Fulton is a must-read, an incredible tale of how easily our own government can overrule justice. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination.
2: I am wrapping up my stay here in Roswell, New Mexico. I'm reflecting on the festival. I'm reflecting on the Roswell case and ufology in general, I guess. And uh, I think that when we look at the whole of ufology and uh, the festival and the the museum, you know, highlight ufology uh, that way, that there's some very interesting stuff going on. There's stuff that suggests the extraterrestrial But there's stuff that is very problematic. I am very skeptical of the abduction phenomenon. And I, as you know, we've talked to Kathleen Martin about this. I'll be talking to Travis Walton about this. And uh, I'm just very skeptical about it. I have said in the past that if there was legitimate abduction, people being taken to the spacecraft for examination, that I would expect it to be more like what Barney and Betty Hill reported, more like what Travis Walton reported, a single event sort of a target of opportunity. Uh, gather the information like they, like we would tag a, a, a beast in the ocean or whatever and send them back on their merry way after gathering the data that we wanted. When we get into these cases where people talk about multiple abductions, they began when they were chi- children, that becomes problematic for me. I just, I just can't see that happening. And I worry about the logistics of it and something that nobody really addresses. Uh, if you're traveling interstellar distances and and the distances are massive and there is no way that we know that it's possible to do it other than long long term where the craft would be traveling literally for years to get from there to here or for us to get from from here to there um, it makes it very problematic and then you talk about the numbers of people who believe they've been abducted and you've got dozens and dozens of ships orbiting the earth and you just the the logistics just boggle the mind and why don't we have much better evidence um, gathered about this sort of thing. I've also suggested that the abduction research strikes me as more more like case studies which you would do in psychology a case study where you're talking to people and you're doing analysis of that and we really haven't advanced far beyond that oh kathleen martin suggested some things that they're doing that i find interesting but i just don't think it's going to take us to the extraterrestrial and that's uh you know that's a difference of opinion but i think when you're talking to someone like kathleen martin you know she's very enthusiastic about her work and she seems to uh, understand some of the problems you have with that sort of work. But when you get to the bottom line, we really still don't have the physical evidence to, to make the case. And that's kind of the way we are with the entire UFO phenomenon. We don't really have the evidence to make, make the case, prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, so that we can all say, yes, there's alien visitation. Let's go on to the next question. Uh, festivals like this kind of, I guess, bring to lots of people some of the theories of ufology, some of the information from ufology, some of the testimonies and the evidence that we do have from ufology. And that can't necessarily be a bad thing. But I wonder if, um, you know, in the future they won't be looking back at us and kind of laughing at us for our our belief structures and some of this sort of thing. And um, I try to approach the research, try to approach the investigations from a semi-skeptical point of view and yes i understand that my bias tends to get in the way but everybody has a bias and it tends to get in the way but i try to be as dispassionate as i can to learn what's going on and a festival like this sometimes can help us uh, gain insight into ufology even if it takes us in the wrong direction meaning that, that the insight we gain suggests that a specific case probably has a terrestrial explanation or a mundane explanation as opposed to something alien but it brings together people who are interested in ufos and a lot of researchers who have done a lot of work in ufos and we discuss those ideas and we don't necessarily discuss them in the panels or or in the uh, presentations or in uh, the areas where the books and all of that stuff are available but we we do it with one another in uh, uh private conversations And we learn a little bit about, well, somebody has this idea that needs to be looked at, or somebody else has this idea that needs to be looked at. And so we take a look at all of that sort of thing and talk about it with the various researchers about that, although it's not necessarily, um, as I said, open to the public discussion. But I know in discussing some of this with Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, for example, um, looking at the different avenues that the Roswell Research could go, and they're going in a little bit different direction than I would go, and that would be they're looking at um, talking to the children and the grandchildren of the people who were in Roswell in 1947, and I'm not sure that's a lucrative venue, and we've kind of talked about how do you separate the truth of those second-hand, third-hand testimonies from the primary data, and um, I am not convinced that that's a, a lucrative way to follow. But they're, they're, doing, they're doing the research and uh, they're enjoying what they're doing and they're uh, trying to do it as the best they can. Um, you know, I, w- I just avoid the secondhand testimonies and that's my own personal, I guess, bias against that. I look at the different things. I hold out some hope for the Ramey memo, for example, that we will be able to read it and it'll give us a real clue as opposed to uh, <laughs> kind of dashing our hopes. Uh, I still look for people that have letters or journals or diaries from 1947, people who were here, where they might have mentioned the alien craft, they might have mentioned something strange going on in the base, and we just haven't found anything like that. I find it incredible that the number of people involved, we have not found anything like that. I can kind of understand it from the military point of view, where they were told not to talk about it and it was classified, and if you do, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. But there's a lot of civilians involved in in it as well. We talk about the ranchers out out near Corona, New Mexico. We talk about the Proctors. We talk about uh, the Sutherlands. We talk about all these people who were sort of involved in it, and we just don't find anything. And it may be that the ranchers out there didn't keep journals or didn't keep diaries and didn't write letters, but the military people would. And you would just think that somebody would have written something dated July of 1947 and said, boy, what this strange thing happened. And and we just haven't found anything like that. And I I find that very worrisome. And uh, I find it worrisome that we find so many witnesses that aren't telling the truth that are confabulating their experiences to put themselves in the center of the story. One fellow came to us and he said that his dad was a Colonel who had flown in from right field. And, and he was with his dad and his dad took him out to the crash site. I just could not envision any military officer taking his son out to the crash site that's now heavily guarded and probably the uh, under heavy, heavy classification as well, violate the classification to, to take his son out there. So, you know, we reject that story sort of out of hand. And I know there's stories like that that... Um, that we've all rejected. But we've also been fooled by some people. Frank Kaufman comes to mind immediately and he seemed very credible. He seemed like he was telling the truth and he seemed that uh, things were going this way. When we looked at the yearbook to see if Frank Kaufman was in there, we find a picture of him receiving a medal from one of the base officers. I think it's a World War II victory medal, which which astonishes me they would have some kind of ceremony presenting that because everybody who was involved in the military got the World War II victory medal. But but he's here's he in the year 1947, puts him at the base, puts him operating with these people out there. So that was sort of corroboration for him. We later learned um, from the documentation he presented us, he gave us a copy of his separation papers and it showed him to be a master sergeant with training and in intelligence. But when we checked with St. Louis, where all the military records are held for people who've served in the military and who, who are not on active duty. We learned that he had been a staff sergeant in his training and been in administration. And we found other evidence that he wasn't telling the truth. Initially, we believed the story. We now know it's not to be true. It's not true. And we we rejected he should be reduced to a footnote in a book. But we have to mention it because he had been part of the story originally. And that complicates the whole thing. but as I say, when we're talking with the various researchers here, you, you might have a piece of information that's critical to me, or I might have one that's critical to you, and we kind of share that information. The festival brings us together and allows us to, make that, uh, to share that information that way, and I think that's one of the good things of it that when talking to these other people i can say oh yeah that's a very good point or no you you missed you missed the point on this one here's what we need to need to do or here's here's why this witness is not really credible anymore and i noticed in my lectures here i mentioned some of this stuff as well you know here are witnesses that have been touted as being authentic and were not and i know that uh, tom and don did the same thing talked about some of the evidence that has blown up in our faces so that's kind of an overview of the festival here in Roswell, New Mexico. As I say, it's, some of it's a party, some of it uh, encourages research. There's an opportunity to look at uh, the material that they have gathered here and uh, is open for the, for the researchers to take a look at. And there's an awful lot of material there's, uh, that, that's helpful for that sort of research. And the festival brings all of that into the forefront. I think that's a good thing. I do wish personal opinion that some of the people uh, and some of the uh, exhibits would be labeled a little bit differently. I would do it a little bit differently, but that's just me and uh, I could be wrong on those points. Um, so if you have uh, you have questions, you have comments, take a look at the, my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Uh, if it's a personal note dress, addressed to me, I monitor the content of the Blog postings, so that it doesn't appear automatically, and I can respond to you personally if I've got a, if you've given me an email address or you have a question like that. And I try to do that, and sometimes I you put the questions up on the uh, blog to to be answered as well. But that's as I say at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. If you're interested in the Roswell case, I think that the you need to take a look at Roswell in the 21st century. Uh, one fellow who came up to, to me was talking about the book. He said, it really isn't for the novice though. You've got to have a kind of an understanding of the whole case to really understand what I'm talking about there. I wasn't sure that was exactly right, but you know, that's one man's opinion. I will be returning uh, to the microphone here in 167 hours with another episode of A Different Perspective. So um, think about us in the future and tune in for another episode. Thank you for listening.